Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Y'all can keep talking. I, I, have a mo- I need a moment. You guys can keep chatting. Don't worry. Or we could quiet down and <laughs> I'll keep going. Uh, good morning. My name is Amanda Lum. I'm the teaching and adult ministries pastor on staff. It's great to be here with all of you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 7. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible beneath the seat in front of you. If you've been with us over the last couple weeks, uh, you know that we've jumped back into our study of the Gospel of Luke. And um, this morning, we're going to continue reading in chapter 7. And we're going to look at a longer story here this morning, and we're going to consider a theme that's kind of woven throughout this entire story. So this morning, we're going to talk about expectations. So the verses that are leading up to the ones that we looked at today, Jesus, he's been performing these miracles. People are being healed. I mean, miraculous things are happening, and the news about Jesus and all that he's doing for people is spreading. And this news gets to John the Baptist, who's been arrested and is in jail, But his disciples, John's disciples, are telling John all about what's going on with Jesus. And that's where we catch up in the story this morning. We will begin reading in verse 18. Stick with me because it's a long story this morning. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they asked Or they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messengers ahead of you, who will pr- I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. 
all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word acknowledges, or acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you said he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend to tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Whew. All right, well, that seems pretty clear, right? We can probably just pack this thing up and head home, right? Let's pray, get out of here a little early. Super clear, right? Not confusing at all. I mean, is anyone else scratching their head a little bit? Like, what just happened? What? I mean, these verses, they're anything but straightforward, right? I remember sitting down several weeks back to study them, read through them the first time and was like, what? And then I went back and read it again and was like, I don't know. Like, okay, so just kept reading it over and over again because the verses, they're a little bit confusing. See, John, John sends two disciples to Jesus to ask what appears to be a pretty straightforward question. They ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? John wants to know if Jesus is the Messiah that the people have been waiting for. Seems to be a fairly direct question, like maybe a simple yes or no would do. But Jesus, he gives like this rather long and even confusing response to their question. He tells John's disciples, well, go back to John and tell, tell him what you've heard and what you've seen. And at this point, Jesus has performed miracle after miracle. So much has happened. And this is the proof that he gives John's disciples to go back to Jesus with to answer his question. I... I felt myself kind of wishing I could have seen John's disciples like in this moment. I wish I could have seen their faces when he's like, go back and tell them what you saw. Like, did they have some follow-up questions for Jesus? I mean, they were given a pretty direct task by John, go find out if he's the Messiah, right? Jesus answers them, and were they like, so, so is, that like a, is that like a yes? Yes or no? Okay, okay. Were they walking back together being like, you be the one to tell John what he said, right? I mean, it's confusing. Jesus does not give them a direct answer. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because this is Jesus' style, right? Jesus, he is a master at asking questions. The people, they're concerned about answers. They want answers. But Jesus seems perfectly content to keep asking questions, Throughout the Gospels, Jesus asked just over 300 questions, while he has only asked around 180 questions. And rarely when he is asked a question does he give a direct answer. Rarely meaning less than 10. Less than 10 times Jesus actually answers a question directly. Jesus, he is a master at asking questions and inviting curiosity and exploration. 
And I don't think Jesus does this to frustrate us. I don't think Jesus is like sidestepping questions because he doesn't have the answer. I think Jesus, in his brilliance, he knows that the best answers are ones that lead to more questions, that lead to more exploring, more curiosity, that lead us into knowing a deeper knowing and discovery of our endlessly knowable God. Jesus, in his brilliance, is about questions. But John is looking for an answer, and a pretty important one. See, I have to believe that Jesus knew the weight and the importance of this question that John is asking. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Some translations say, are you the expected one? And now this is no small question. It holds the weight of a heavy expectation. It holds the weight of years generations of expectant waiting. This is not a small question. It's asking about the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king who would come to rescue God's people. Now, I'm struck when I think about this question, I'm actually struck by how vulnerable this question is. It's vulnerable not just because it holds so much anticipation and expectation, but it but it also is vulnerable, vulnerable because the question itself suggests that John has doubts. The question suggests that John is doubting who he knows or believes Jesus to be. See, Jesus is no stranger to John. At the beginning of Luke's Gospels, we're told actually of the connection that they have to each other, of the connection that they will share with one another throughout their lives, even before they are born. Elizabeth, who is John's mother, is a relative of Mary, so they're family. And then Luke's makes clear the connection that they will share to one another throughout their lives because John has been given a calling. He is the messenger who will prepare the way for the expected Messiah. John will prepare the way for Jesus. See, and John, he takes this calling as the messenger seriously. He lives his life in this radical obedience to this calling. He lives out in the wilderness and he preaches this message of of repentance through baptism because the kingdom of God is at hand. John spends his life as the messenger preparing the way for Jesus. And the Gospels tell us that John knew of Jesus and and believed that Jesus was the Messiah even before Jesus comes to John to be baptized in the river. So when Jesus comes to the Jordan and asks John to baptize him, we're told that John hesitates. He's like, no, 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 no. No, I should be baptized by you, not the other way around. But Jesus insists, and when John baptizes Jesus, he come up out of the water, John is there when the heavens open and a voice says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And it's pretty safe to say that Jesus and John are like, you know, friends, like know each other. They're not strangers. Which makes this question interesting. Because even after all John has seen, 
heard and knows experiences of Jesus, John asks the question, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we've been waiting for? What a vulnerable question. See, it appears that even John the Baptist has doubts. And there's actually comfort for me in John's vulnerable question. And I hope there's comfort for you this morning in his question too. Because it does show us that maybe John has some question. He has some doubts. And I hope you can take comfort this morning because if you've ever been in a place where you've been hard on yourself about the questions you have in your faith, or if you've been hard on yourself about the doubts that you have in your faith, then take comfort, my friends, because we can bring our questions and our doubts to Jesus, just like John. Real faith is filled with questions, and yes, even doubts. John shows us that. And maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, okay, I have doubts, but like he was like John the Baptist. He like baptized Jesus, like really? But before we're too hard on John about his questions and about his doubts, I think we need to understand the circumstances that John was in. We need to understand the circumstances or the realities that John was facing when he sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question. See, John sends two disciples to ask Jesus this weighty and vulnerable question, and that's because John couldn't go himself, because John is sitting in a jail cell. Luke chapter 3 tells us that John is being held captive by Herod because he has actively spoken out against Herod's misuse of power and the evil acts that Herod commits. John, in his life and in his ministry, is speaking out against the powers of this world over and over again. Herod is furious with John because John has exposed him. He's called him out. Not only did John call Herod out, but John's movement, the people that he's leading his following, is a threat to Herod's power. John's popularity and the revolutionary possibilities of of the people who were following him, the movement, it was a threat to everything Herod had. And so he has John arrested and thrown in jail. Now surely John knew the evil that Herod was capable of, and I'm sure that John... Uh, knew that his fate was grim. And when we consider the realities that John was facing as a prisoner of Herod awaiting further punishment, starts to make a little more sense about why John has questions, even why he has doubts. See, because John, like many who were devoted to faith, they were waiting expectantly for the Messiah the anointed one, the promised king, the one who would come and rescue them from oppression and from suffering. And understandably so, the people of God had a very specific idea of what deliverance and liberation were going to look like for God's people when the Messiah came. For a Jewish person in the first century, the Messiah was expected to be a conquering king, not a suffering servant. See, they were waiting for the Messiah to come 
and overthrow the kingdoms of this world, to take over and to take the rightful place on the throne. It was inconceivable that the Messiah would come and suffer and die at the hands of the ones who held the most power. It was unfathomable that the Messiah would come, would not come as a king and overthrow the kingdoms of this world and take his place on the throne, the place that was rightfully his. See, the Messiah was expected to be a conquering king. And John surely believed this because he even references this throughout his ministries in his interactions with the religious elite. John anticipated this like fiery period of judgment. John expected Jesus to take an instant road to power and glory and to take his place on the throne as king. And this was perfectly reasonable for for people in the first century to believe that this is what the Messiah would be like, considering Old Testament prophecies and considering what they believed to be true and saw to be true about kings and rulers in their time. So let's not be hard on them about their expectations because it was reasonable. These were the commonly held beliefs and expectations of who the Messiah would be, how the world would function when the Messiah came. And I can't help but think of the irony in these verses that we have Jesus who comes and says at the start of his ministry that he is the anointed one, the one who will come to set the prisoners free. And then we have John sitting in a, dull, a, a dark, cold jail cell. I can't help but wonder if John was sitting in his cell wondering, but where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come yet to set me free? And so when he hears these reports about all that Jesus is doing, he asks, go ask him if he's the one makes sense to me. When we think about the commonly held beliefs about who the Messiah would be, and we think about the circumstances that John is facing, his doubt makes a little more sense, doesn't it? Jesus, are you the one? Really? Are you the one that we have been expecting? See, when Jesus does not act like John expects, he has questions. And I wonder if this is why, I wonder if this is why Jesus does not answer John's disciples with a simple yes or no when his disciples ask him, are you the expected one? See, Jesus knew the weight and the expectation that this question carried. And with the crowds watching, Jesus doesn't give a simple or direct answer. And that's because it turns out the answer to that question is far more complicated than we could have ever thought. It seems that the answer to that question is like yes and no. Some version of yes and no, right? Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And yes, he will one day enter the capital city and take his rightful place on the throne, but it will not be in a way that anyone expects it to. Yes, he is the Messiah, but he will not conquer the kingdoms of this world through violence and through force, but he will be victorious. And he will do so, he will rescue humanity by making the ultimate sacrifice. See, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but what that looks like 
is completely unexpected. See, Jesus does not meet John's expectations, and John is disappointed. He has doubts. He has questions. God does not do what John expects, and he has questions. Well, I can relate with that. Can you? Are we not disappointed when things don't go as expected? Are we not hurt, broken, or even angry with God when God does not show up the way we expect? It's simply human to be disappointed, even heartbroken, when this life goes, does not go the way that we expect it to. It's also incredibly human to have expectations in itself. I'd love to be someone who could just be like, well, I'm just not going to have any expectations, right? But that's unreasonable. It is human to have expectations. So let's talk about expectations for a minute. I am an Enneagram 1. And I share this little tidbit of information with you because Enneagram 1s have made it their life's mission to clarify expectations. Where are my ones at? Yeah. I said we were going to talk about expectations and they were like, oh, no. Right? We love expectations. We love to know what we can expect from someone else, from a situation. And mostly we love to let people know what they can expect from us. I have spent my life managing expectations for myself and for others, for the world, for everything, really. I'm great at it, okay? So all the ones in the room, we have a thing or two to say about expectations. But it's not just the Enneagram ones that have expectations. All of us do. Can we just say that? All of us have expectations. It's just human, all right? We can't avoid them. And some... Some expectations are simple and they're inconsequential, right? Maybe you expect that your favorite TV show is actually going to deliver on all the drama that's promised in the last episode, but then you get to it and you're like, really? All right. Or maybe you send like a fun meme to your friend and you expect this like witty exchange of emojis and gifts and then your friend like never gets back to you and you're like, wah, wah, right? Or maybe you're a Broncos fan. Yeah. Started the season off with some high expectations, right? But you watch the last five games like, what is happening? Okay, maybe that last example stings just a little bit more than your favorite TV show. Okay, we all have expectations. We can't avoid it. And while some are simple and inconsequential, others are far more risky, aren't they? My guess is that right now, some expectations are welling up inside you, ones that feel risky or hard. We all know the weight of those expectations, don't we? Expectations for our lives, where we would be right now, today. Expectations for our job, for the people we love, for our important relationships, for our kids, right, for our friends. Expectations for the world, expectations of what justice would look like expectations for our faith, and yes, expectations for God. All of us have expectations. 
We can't avoid it. It's just human. We can't fight that. And often, when our expectations are not met, we feel disappointment, don't we? We feel pain. We feel hurt. And yes, we may even have doubts. And if you're anything like me, when our expectations are not met in these painful moments, well, we think to ourselves, well, maybe if I didn't expect so much, maybe if the bar wasn't so high, then maybe it wouldn't hurt so bad when they're not met. And so in an attempt to protect ourselves or to prevent feeling any future pain or disappointment or hurt, we just lower our expectations. We lower the bar. This is, this is the reality for the last few years, isn't it? No one, none of us expected a global pandemic or all the pain or the hurt that would come from this. I mean, how many times have you heard in the last few years, the bar is really low? I can't tell you how many times I've said to my husband or to my family, like, oh, no, 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 let's not get our expectations up so much, okay? Let's not get our hopes up. Let's not expect too much from 2023. We saw how 2022 went, right? So we try to protect ourselves by managing our expectations, right? Try to protect ourselves, but really what we're doing, is this loving, honestly? Is it, is, it, is it a healthy thing to do? Is it really good for us to lower our expectations all the time? I mean, how low can the bar get? And we're just like okay with that? See, Brene Brown, um, in an interview that I listened to recently, she actually says and cautions people against lowering their expectations. And I just listen to Brene. Just, like, I gotta listen to her, right? Everyone who doesn't know Brene Brown, I'm like, who's Brene? Uh, We'll talk later, okay? But yeah, she just cautions us against lowering our expectations. And she says that she tells people not to lower their expectations because she's seen so many choose to live disappointed rather than risk feeling disappointment. Think about that for just a moment. We live disappointed because we are afraid to risk feeling disappointment. I call this bracing, and I have a name for it because I'm awfully good at it. I'm very good at looking at a situation, thinking I'm some master of expectations, right? And I brace myself for the worst possible outcome thinking that if I brace myself for the worst, that if it happens, it won't hurt so much when it does. But here's the reality. When we brace ourselves for the worst possible outcome, instead of just protecting ourselves, we actually end up living as if the worst has already happened. We live disappointed. We live with the bar here. This is heartbreaking, isn't it? This is not how we're meant to live. Keep lowering the bar all the time. So why do we do this then? That's like, why do I do this? I've been asking myself this question, and my best guess is, is that pain is a powerful thing. 
See, we lower the bar, we try not to get our hopes up, we brace for the worst because we've taken that risk before and we've experienced the pain and the hurt and the sorrow of unmet expectations. And pain is a powerful motivator. So we try to control the outcome by managing our expectations. Usually this means lowering them. And see, when I'm learning about expectations, for many of us, myself included, is that it's more about having control than maybe we want to admit. We want certainty. We want to know what to expect. We want to know when. We want to know who. We want to know how, right? We want to feel like we have some sort of control in our life. Even if control means lowering our expectations, even if control means lowering the bar, even if control means living a life disappointed. So we spend our time and energy managing expectations, grabbing onto something that we can close our fists around and hold onto for dear life. We lower our expectations. We try to find some way to control the outcome because we don't want to feel pain. We don't want to hurt. But here's what's fascinating to me. Jesus never asks us to lower our expectations. Jesus never asks us to lower the bar. His life, his ministry, his kingdom invites us to expect the unexpected. Luke's gospel has been story after story after story of Jesus doing the unexpected, eating with tax collectors, raising people from the dead, embracing and holding on to those in society who've been cast aside. Everyone was on the edge of their seats wondering, what will Jesus do next? See, Jesus was not who the people expected the Messiah to be. He was so much more, so much more. No one expected the Messiah to come as a suffering servant. No one expected the Messiah to rescue humanity by sacrificing his own life and dying on a cross. No one expected Jesus on the third day to conquer death. No one expected resurrection. Jesus is unexpected. The resurrection was unexpected. The kingdom of God is unexpected. It's not limited by our expectations. Because sadly, if we spend our lives with our fists closed tight around what we expect to happen, then we not only close our fists around certain outcomes that are not guaranteed, but we also close ourselves off to the possibility of something far greater happening. We close ourselves off to the possibilities of the kingdom, and we limit our ability to see and experience all that God can do. The kingdom of God is unexpected, and this is Good news. Just this past week, I got to experience the beauty of the unexpected kingdom. Uh, last Thursday, I was sitting at my computer, and I, I'm not kidding, I had just finished writing the outline for this sermon. 
And I was like, I'm going to talk about the unexpected kingdom. All right. Next thing. So I started looking for an email that was lost that wasn't related to anything to do with this sermon at all. And I end up in my spam folder, right? And somehow I see an email from a guy who I had worked with 12 years ago in my first job out of, outside of college, right? In my first job in ministry. And when I saw this guy's name, this like tension, this gross tension started to like just well up in my chest and I was like, ugh. Does anyone know that feeling? See that person, right? You're like, oh God. So I saw his name because sadly this guy is one of the most painful men that I have ever served alongside in ministry. Uh, This guy, he had some really strong, strong convictions about women in ministry uh, and he was adamant that women are not permitted to teach or lead men in any capacity. And he wasn't shy about his convictions, and sticking to them was actually, at times, incredibly painful for me. To be honest, I remember him to be belittling, condescending, and even degrading to me and the other women who we served with. So when I saw his name, in my email after 12 years, there was some tension for me. See, when we, when we weren't serving on the same staff team anymore, I remember thinking to myself, well, he's never going to change his mind about women in ministry, so probably best that we're not working together anymore. I actually was convinced that he would never change his mind about women in ministry, and, and I had kind of closed my fists around who he could be. It was impossible. He wasn't going to change his mind. So when I saw his name in my email, I was a little like, oh, man. And then in a random moment of curiosity, I thought, oh, I wonder if he's still in ministry. And so I started to look him up. I Googled him, and at the top of the page was his Twitter feed. And at the top of his Twitter feed, he had pinned a post that that was titled, Let Her Lead how my views on women in ministry have shifted. We, I, you guys, I saw it. I'm glad your response was really good. I was like, okay. (laughs) Right? Yeah, all right. So then I clicked on the link, and I'm taken to uh, his blog, which is over 20 posts um, with his reflections and this process for him. I click on the top one, and I kid you not, the first story that he tells is a story of a time 12 years ago when we were serving on the same team when he stood up and walked out on a woman who started to stand and walk towards the podium to preach. I read a story about a time when I was sitting in a room with this man, and I watched him walk away. Of all the blog posts, As I read this story, tears streaming down my face because I watched him publicly admit and own that when he, in the moment, he felt proud of his decision, proud of himself for standing by his convictions, that he felt manly even, but that he looks back on this moment 12 years ago and he feels like a coward that he was filled with sadness and regret. And then I go on to read, barely because the tears are just coming down, that this is his public repentance for the ways in which he's hurt and damaged relationship and kept women from leading in the past. 
I sat there, you guys, I sat there and was like, what is happening? I called my husband and was like, I had no words, you guys, I had no words. That doesn't happen to me, like ever. This was wildly unexpected. I sat there weeping at my computer because this was a grace I did not know I needed. It was an apology that I expected would never come, but one that I didn't know I desperately needed in my soul. This was a change in a man who I had deemed unredeemable, in a man who I said, this change is not possible. But the kingdom of God is unexpected. Now, maybe you hear that story and you're like, amen. Yeah, that sounds great. I love that. Maybe this story reminds you of the times in your own life where you have experienced the unexpected goodness of Jesus. Or maybe you hear the story and it brings you life, it brings you hope, because you are in your own season of expectant waiting right now. And that's beautiful. That's what I hope that story would offer. But I also want to name that maybe you hear that story this morning and it makes you think of the times that you dared You dared to expect the unexpected, but you were disappointed. Maybe you think of the moments where you dared to dream and expect for the unexpected kingdom of God, and your heart was broken. If that's where you are this morning, if you hear this story, or you think about expectations, and you find yourself thinking, that what? But what happens when you're disappointed? What happens when you're brave and you hope and you dare to expect the unexpected and you're heartbroken? If that's where you are, I want you to know that I see you. That I'm with you. That you are not alone in your questioning. You are not alone in your doubt. You are not alone in your longing. I, and I know so many of us in the room, know that ache too. This is the tension of a kingdom that is always coming but is not yet here, right? Because even when we are confident that we will one day see resurrection in our stories, how and when that will happen is still unknown. And so some of us are still waiting. I see you. I know what it is to call out, God, how long, oh Lord, how long? You're not alone. Because let's be honest, expectations, they're tricky, aren't they? Especially ones that have to do with our faith or our expectations with God. Now this somewhat confusing and even complicated story in Luke's gospel, it has this theme of expectations kind of woven throughout it, right? John's disciples are asking Jesus, are you the expected one? Jesus asks the crowds, what did you expect when you went into the wilderness looking for John? And even the story ends with Jesus somewhat saying, well, John's not who you expected him to be, and I'm not who you expected like I should be. So friends, what do we do with expectations then? What do we do with them? And instead, you know, I have to be honest with you, I really want to answer that question. 
But I don't think the answer is going to be as helpful as maybe another question. The question is, how are you holding them? I want us to consider not just what we should do with our expectations, but maybe more importantly, how are we holding them? What is your posture? Think about your hands. Are you clinging to your own expected outcomes with tight fists? Have we closed our hands and ourselves off to the unexpected outcomes of a good king? Or are we bravely and courageously holding our expectations with hands open, with our hearts open to whatever might come? This is brave work. But when I think about holding our expectations with an open hand, I think about Psalm 4610 when the psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God. The words be still here, they literally mean to sink or relax or release, to let go. And this kind of knowing here, it's more than just knowledge. It's more than just knowing something in our heads. It's knowing something in our bodies, like deep down in our souls. This knowing is experiential. It's an embodied knowing. Be still and know I am God. The words here, they're actually an invitation for us to release our grip and know deep down in our bodies that God holds all things. My friends, we don't have to hold all the things because God is the holder of everything. So maybe the invitation for us this morning is to stop trying to manage our expectations. Maybe these verses are inviting us to stop closing our hands around outcomes that we are not in control of. Maybe we're being invited instead to hold our expectations with open hands and to know deep down in our souls that we are held, that we are embraced, and we are wildly loved by the unexpected king. Let's pray together. God, thank you that this world is not what I expected. God, we confess how difficult it is to open our hands, how difficult it is to not Hold on tight to our expected outcomes. And I don't think you're asking us or telling us that we have to do something different. We can just sit here and name in front of you in your presence that that is hard. But God, I am grateful that you are an unexpected God. 
and that you are greater than anything we could ever dream possible, that your resurrection was unexpected and that new life is unexpected. God, I pray that you would meet with us and invite us, Lord, to be held, to be embraced, and to be loved by you, the God who holds everything. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. Thanks for engaging our teaching. Before you go, we want to highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, which typically marks the beginning of the holiday season. As much joy as the holidays can bring for many, we know this season can be extremely difficult. And when this happens, it can be hard to let others know how we're feeling. We want to encourage you, if you may be experiencing depression or anxiety, to not carry that alone. Let someone know, a friend, a family member, one of DCC's pastors, or a counselor, speaking openly about our mental health and supporting others who are experiencing a mental health crisis is vitally important to community. If you'd like resources, you can explore our website at denverchurch.org. And if you're currently experiencing a mental health emergency, please dial 988 on your phone now to reach the mental health crisis line. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in the world. Go in peace.